Hello, friends of Essential Aromatica. Today's episode is another spotlight on aromatherapy with a very special guest, Claire Liker of Phoebe, that's P-H-I-B-E-E, where the P is capitalized and the B is capitalized. Phoebe Aromatics, based in the breathtaking area of Sedona, Arizona. Phoebe Aromatics is the family-run business of Claire and Max Liker. You may be curious what Phoebe might stand for. In, in, excuse me, it's an amalgam of their two daughters' names. Claire and Max have been harvesting and distilling native plants of the Southwest of North America since 2005. Of note, they are permitted by the U.S. Forest Service to wildcraft, and they are avid practitioners and speakers about sustainable harvesting practices, which is you know, becoming more and more important conversations globally about essential oils and harvesting. Uh, so a bit about Claire. She has studied medicinal herbs since 1987 and is a fine artist with a BFA in painting. Um, she completed a NAHA, the National Association of Holistic Aromatherapists, and AIA. I always get this screwed up, and I'm a member. The um, AIA is the Alliance of International Aromatherapists, right? Mm-hmm. Approved aromatherapy certification programs. And she's an artisanal distiller who consults domestically and internationally on the art and practice of distillation. And she's a writer with numerous contributions to publications such as Aromatherapy Today, the International Journal of Clinical Aromatherapy, and Aromatherapy in Action, which is the AIA's journal. So many acronyms and things. So um, Max, so he's the other part of the business. He is a full-time architect. Um, I know Claire works her butt off doing what she does. Max is a full-time architect, and he is an avid botanist and photographer who has contributed over 6,000 plant specimen collections to local herbariums and cataloged over 1,200 native plants in the Sedona Oak Creek Canyon region. I visited um, with Claire and Max before twice, and I'm like... It's, I'm breath, it's breathtaking. So the work you guys collectively do is amazing. Uh, his plants um, photos have been published widely in the Southwest native plant books and journals and check out their website to see some of this beautiful work. Um, so find more um, on their namesake a website, phoebearomatics.com and check them out on Facebook and Instagram as Phoebe Aromatics. So before I, um, we get to hear Claire's voice, let me just share that um, you heard me say I visited with them, but I first heard them speak way back in 2015 at Kurt Schnaubelt's um, aromatherapy conference. And what a great conference. I hope they have more. And then I got to harvest and prepare distillation on two occasions with Phoebe Aromatics during um, a retreat with the New York Institute of Aromatic Studies. So I... Um, Hold you, you know, my cohort, Becky and I, and our other podcasts, we speak about you a lot and very highly. So I'm very pleased and honored to have Claire with me here today. So Claire, if you could just say hi, so we can hear your lovely voice. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here and um, taking time. I know um, we've been chatting. I know you're busy. So this is precious time. And um, I just want to get right into it because we were talking about blue spruce. Hmm. So the reason why um, I've been in touch with Claire, I've been wanting to ask her to be on my podcast, but I was too shy to ask. But I was looking to purchase some blue spruce from her. I ran out. I needed some for a project. And it was sold out when I went on their website. 
And I feel like blue spruce is a popular botanical. I know there's been things written about it, maybe um, on major brand websites, I'm saying in quotations. So when you're out, you're out. And I, um, I would like to hear more from you, Claire, on despite the fact you could harvest more and more blue spruce and other botanicals and distill it, I'd love you to share your thoughts on that practice. Okay, well, um, I would probably answer that question differently for every plant. Mm. And so with, with blue spruce, we have a permit from the Kaibab National Forest to collect on the Kaibab Plateau. And our permit lasts from September through uh, November. So okay. we, have, we have just three months per year. And um, the reason for that is there, there are two protected species in that area, the grosshawk and the kaibab squirrel. Oh. And, um, and both of these are, both of these animals nest during the spring. And so a lot of times, um, well, especially the kaibab squirrels, they choose the large blue spruce trees to oh. nest in. And so the Forest Service is not wanting those trees disturbed during their nesting period. Um, so, you know, I think if we were, if that was not an issue and we were allowed to go up there, we would probably go twice a year. Mm. It's about a five hour drive for us. And um, so it's usually quite a trip. You know, it's it's um, half a day drive to get there. And in order to make it worth that drive, we usually spend several nights oh. and, um, and so, um, you know, I think, I mean, actually in that three month period that, that we're permitted, we will often go to maybe even three times. But I think okay. that, that if we were allowed to go all year and there was no issue with us collecting more often, we'd probably, you know, go in two different seasons. Okay. So, so, but there, there are other plants, um, say, for example, uh, Poliomentha incana, the common name for that is rosemary mint. Okay. And this plant grows at the Vermilion Cliffs, which is actually on the way to the Kaibab Plateau for us. And that plant is, um, it's a more rare plant. And so with that one, we're mm -hmm. frequently out because we don't want to do anything that would harm the population. So we wait until there's a really good year. And then we'll do just a tiny bit of collecting. And so we may never have more than 20 mils or an ounce of that oil per, per year or even per three years. Wow. It really depends on um, how much rain the environment has gotten there, how good the plants look. Mm -hmm. If they don't look good, we're not going to touch them. And so... So that's why I'm saying 
yeah. would answer that question differently for every plant, just considering the conditions that it lives in, um, how large the populations are. There's for blue spruce, there's quite a bit on the Kaibab Plateau. And those trees are so healthy that they have lots and lots of low branches mm. that form almost like a skirt around mm. the tree. And um, I feel in many ways like we're actually doing the, the tree a service by taking those low branches because it brings them the fire ladder yeah. up a couple of feet off of the ground. And so if a grass fire goes through, the trees will be protected or, or a- more, more protected. So, um, so, you know, in a way, I wish we could actually do a bit more work with the blue spruce. And it is a very popular oil yeah. right now. But um, you're bringing up so many points, um, beautiful points like a the commitment you make you like you find you're permitted that's very responsible you're driving five hours like that's a serious commitment not even talking about the actual harvesting and the distillation process and I don't think a lot of us I wasn't even thinking about protecting the animal species realizing that there's these little critters that call our place home you know and they they rely on these things and I don't think a lot of us humans that are enthusiastically harvesting to make tinctures, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. like by me in Long Island, there's a wild yarrow population that's creeping mm. in. And I'm very mindful of it, but I'm like, Amy, don't take too much, you know, cause that's some valuable nectar and the gold is seaside goldenrod. So I'm really thankful you brought that up because that really didn't cross my mind. I'm so sad well, to say about these I'm- critters calling these, things, you know, beings home. You know, I think it's, um, it's actually the beauty of obtaining permits Mm. from the Forest Service, because I had no idea about that. And if I had thought, well, you know, I, I, we should just go out and get what we want because no one's going to catch us. There aren't enough, uh, there aren't enough uh, forest service rangers out there and we'll just go off in the woods and no one will see us. I would have had no idea that there were two protected species there. And there can be multiple reasons why you should not collect in a particular area at a particular time. And actually, um, just kind of going off of that, there's another protected species. It's a small, very small cactus that's, oh. that's endemic to the Kaibab Plateau. And we aren't even allowed to go near it at all, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another thing, you know, that if if we hadn't gone to the Forest Service and asked for a permit, I wouldn't have known about. Um, so it is really, I think, for anyone who's considering wild crafting yeah. as um, something that they want to do, you know, maybe for, for something beyond just their personal use, I think it really is a very good thing to to ask for permits and they're not terribly expensive either um and and usually at least for us the permits are for so much more plant material than we 
could even touch. Okay. For, for example, with the blue spruce, I think our permit is good for 2,000 pounds. Oh, wow. And I, I think the most that we've ever gathered was probably 300. So, yeah. um, you know, there, and that permit is $20. That's so, you know, it's no big deal. No. And um, our, our permit with the Coconino National Forest covers a lot more areas. It's a, a much, uh, it's a very large forest and we work with a lot of plants within the forest and we have I think five or six different regions where we're permitted that permit is fifty dollars and so um, and every year actually when we renew it they look at the areas that, oh. that that they have approved and they look at those again and see if there's any reason that we should not go there. Wow. So it also sounds like this $20 investment is, is a massive education. So if someone's it like, is. oh, what a hassle. Oh, $20. It's like you can get a Netflix <laughs> subscription for $20. I'm just making it up, right? <laughs> yeah. But you get this massive education and you're helping your ecosystem by mm-hmm. doing this. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. See, I love this because I get to learn things. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Selfishly. Um, Wow. So um, I guess we have a discussion guy, but I warned you, we might go off, you know, riff off this. That's totally fine. Yeah. You recently, and I read it, wrote an article in the AIA journal, and it was about wild harvesting and and permitting and kind of stressing that, right? Mm -hmm. Do you find you get asked a lot or often enough to share your knowledge about this and share best practices by the aromatherapy community? Um, no. Okay. (laughs) And that's not to blame the aromatherapy community or um, the herbal community at all. Um, um, That's actually why I was so feeling so passionate about writing that article. Mm. And um, both the, um, the AIA and the Plant Healers Quarterly, mm-hmm. um, they both agreed to allow me to publish it in in both of their publications. And both of them like to have original material, and which I totally understand. And so I, because of the subject matter, I asked both of them if they would be willing to allow me to publish both places because I felt like um, uh. that that both communities would well both communities are very much um, taking off in this yes. country. There are so many herbalists and people who are interested in wild crafting and native plants. I mean, there's there's no comparison to 20 years ago. Wow. In, in terms of the number of people. And same with aromatherapy. So I just felt like um, like some of these considerations with wild crafting were really important to kind of bring to people's attention. 
Um, and so I, I felt like it was kind of timely and the AIA was doing a sustainable, an issue on sustainability. So it just felt like perfect timing. And um, I was I just really think happy to, to think about all those issues and really define a lot of them. So I guess I'm biased because I think of you, I had the pleasure of meeting you in person and seeing you speak at that conference. So like, to me, like it's something I'm aware of and I know you're aware of. So I do want to give a shout out. I I do subscribe to the Plant Herb um, Healers Quarterly, and I recently stopped the subscription because I was looking at my business expenses. <laughs> but I do recommend it. But um, uh, the the timing's impeccable. So wow, I I just feel like I like you're Claire. You talk about this all the time, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just realizing um, they have another publication that's a monthly publication that is free I think they might have put oh. it in that one which is actually even better because there are even more subscribers yeah I'll have to check that out so um, for our listeners the plant healers quarterly and monthly um, something to look into so wow god you yeah, see I have biases so it's good to ask these questions um, like Claire, Claire just goes around public speaking about sustainability um, so I have a, the next question, I think is a little redundant with the first one, but maybe it isn't. So I'm just going to okay, read it and we'll sure. see where we go. Um, so in recent email correspondence of me seeking the blue spruce oil, you shared with me how um, several distilling and enfleurage opportunities. So Claire does more. She does enfleurage techniques too. They presented themselves to you. It's like the universe was just giving you plant material so this brought up to mind that regardless of our schedules, you know, sometimes the plants are there. They're like, hey, guys, we're ready. Like, you're going to work with me or not because the, the time is fleeting. So um, I have written here, we humans plan so much, but sometimes the plants just don't let us plan. And I would love, given you've been working with plants, uh, you know, studying plants for, you know, since what was that since the 80s? I forget what. Mm -hmm. um, and then distilling since 2005. I would just love your feelings and your observations from studying, harvesting, distilling, and running a business about how you approach this seasonality, like the permit you have for three months. Like, how does does this inform your rhythm, or how does it of your your life? <laughs> yes. Um, well, definitely, a rhythm has developed over the years um, because, lucky for us, the plants are at their peak time for distilling at different times of the year. So for example, conifers mm -hmm. produce the most essential oil and the most bright and beautiful and sweet essential oil midwinter. So we, we generally start with conifers late fall and then we go through mid spring in mm -hmm. general. And so sometimes how and why we distill a plant is dependent on nature and other times it's a dependent on when something comes available. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, maybe one of Max's clients is his architectural clients is breaking ground on a new home in July mm -hmm. and three pinions and two junipers are going to be taken out. 
we're going to go in there for sure and we're going to collect that plant material um, and and we're going to utilize it so it doesn't go to waste um, but it's not necessarily the ideal time to work with it because uh, it's hot and during that time um, maybe monsoons have started and once monsoons start the the, um, the yield of essential oil will go down. When it's really hot, the yield of essential oil will go down. So normally we would work with these plants in the winter so mm -hmm. that we're maximizing both our time, we're maximizing the yield from the plant material so there's less wastage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are many many different aspects I think that inform when we collect things but it it is nice that not every plant is ready at the same time and so usually at about the time that the um, the yield is tapering off with the conifers then some of the early spring plants will be becoming ready and then um so that might be desert lavender like we mm. usually start checking desert lavender anywhere between march april sometimes early may and um then we have a fair amount of um like european herbs in our garden and those usually are perfect in maybe june july and so during that time we're not working on conifers and we're not working on the native fall blooming yeah. plants that we normally work on. So we'll shift our attention to um, things like oregano and clary sage. And um, there's a, a plant that we have in our garden also called um, um, Monarda menthifolia or mm. wild oregano. Yeah. Um, we have some winter savory mm. and let's see what else. Um, oh, also, um, we have some friends in the Verde Valley who have a lavender and lavendine farm. And so come this June, we're probably going to be doing maybe six or seven large distillations for them. Wow. And yeah, so, you know, a lot of the European stuff we'll be working on then. You just um, reminded me like a, a saying came to mind that like everyone has their chance to shine or like mm -hmm. all the plants do. And like, we uh -huh. can just notice that. And I'm just thinking last year I had a, a, a friend who owns an organic farm, a small herb farm. She's like, Amy, I have nettles growing. Do you want some? I'm like, I guess what I'm distilling this weekend. You know, it's just mm. like, that was the time at it's yes. and it's just like, okay. Drop everything, you know. I won't be doing that today. I'll be prepping nettles. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Um, and I just have to say, I remember your clary sage in your gardens, and it's it's just gorgeous. Like the climate, it's thank you unique. To, um, and yeah, those those heady like oregano and winter savory, they really get to shine in that in your climate, mm -hmm. right? They do. And um, actually, it's surprising how well those herbs do here. I would never have believed that they would thrive in this environment. I mean, um, 
Sedona receive, receives about 17, they, we average about 17 inches of rain per year. And between the winter storms and the monsoon rains, which is the period that we're in right now, it gets extremely dry. And um, luckily right now we're not having the high heat yet, but you know, another month or so, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be dying here. So um, it's kind of remarkable that they make it through that, but they actually thrive. And the distillations are gorgeous. Yeah, I just, um, I you really love working with those plants. Do you feel like, and I'm saying this, it's kind of, I'm leading you in this because I'm learning something all the time, but do you feel like mm-hmm. you're always being taught something through always. your time? like? always is there anything you like that comes to mind in the past year maybe about plants or distillation or any kind of method you don't if you don't don't worry if you it's not on the top of your head um Um, well I would say one of the most profound experiences that I've had in terms of learning about a plant would be with Arizona juniper And the reason that it was so profound for me is it's one of the seven native junipers of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I would say, even though I try not to judge aromas and plants as being a favorite or a least favorite, (laughs) I would say that the aroma of the oil initially wasn't one that I warmed up to very quickly. Let's put it that way. But I always had a feeling of reverence for the plant because it's one of the two native junipers that grows in Arizona. We're kind of at the at the higher end of its elevation mm-hmm. range. And um, and it just, you know, it felt special to me because it was one of the seven in Arizona. And but you know the to be honest, the first time my older daughter smelled it, I think she was about 10 years old, she goes, ew, mom, it smells like a swimming pool. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I couldn't disagree with her. And, and I would find when we did workshops, that I, I felt a little like when it came time to talk about this plant, I was very aware of the fact that I didn't feel very connected to Mm. it because I didn't, quote, like the essential oil very much. And um, so, but I still distilled it for years and years and years, kind of feeling this way. And then um, my dog was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And um, we kept her in really good shape for a long time. She was in no pain and, and you know, the, the veterinary Um, doctor thought maybe she had six months we had two great years with her Mm. and then suddenly we realized that it really was it really had gotten to a point where we had to make the call for her because she was only going to suffer from that point on and right when I made this call I felt such deep grief about you know letting go of her and I had like maybe five days to be with her. And um, immediately someone came by and dumped a huge load of Arizona juniper 
on the doorstep of the distillery. And I was like, well, that's great, but I'm not working with it. This, you know, I'm going to just let it be until she has passed because mm -hmm. I am only spending time with her this week. And I, I got suddenly very compelled to um, go hike in a particular area where there happened to be a lot of Arizona junipers. And um, so I would take her up there every day and she would stop and stand by the trees and smell them. And um, I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And, and I got like almost obsessed with photographing them Mm. And I, I had this sense or this feeling that these trees are assisting me in some way in processing my grief. And, but it, was, it wasn't something that I would necessarily um, talk about like I am now mm. because I just felt like, well, you know, this is my experience. It doesn't mean that anyone else would have this exact experience. And, and these things can be very subjective. And so, um, so the time came for to say goodbye to her. And so the next day, then um, I was deeply grieving. And but the next day I decided I really should get on distilling these plants because they're just going to dry up if I don't do something. <laughs> so I did. And um, then I didn't open the oil for um, several months, actually. You know, wow. usually I might check on something six to eight weeks later, which is kind of the industry standard for um, the maturation process of an essential oil. And I, but I waited a couple months and I opened it up and I, and I smelled it and I immediately burst into tears with oh. no, no thought process whatsoever. And um, it just, it helped like pull grief out of my system. And, um, and that night I had, beautiful dream with my dog I'm gonna try to not cry right uh -oh. now <laughs> but in the dream I was aware that I was seeing her and I was like oh my god Luna you know and I hugged her and I pulled on her ears I massaged her ears the way she loved yeah. and then I realized oh you know you've passed and usually when I have a dream about someone and I realize in the dream that they have passed, then usually the dream is done instantly uh. and I wake up or, or they're gone. And um, I had the realization and I didn't wake up and she didn't leave. And I had this really long, beautiful experience with her. And so I woke up in the morning and I felt so wonderful for having had this dream. And I felt like, well, that must have been, um, you know, my memory was triggered clearly, uh, you know, with the oil and the trees and the whole process and um, through scent and aroma, yes. you know, my, it, it seems um, like it would be easy to say that my memory was triggered. 
Um, you know, but then whether there was something more happening there is subjective. Uh, but it really compelled me to look deeper into some of the, um, maybe the, um, like, the psycho-emotional uses of juniper. And um, needless to say, there's almost nothing written about that. There's certainly nothing written about the native junipers of Arizona. That's what I was but, just going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of anything like that. Um, but I did find in a book of, of European wand lore um, that juniper was used to connect with the spirit world. Mm. And so I thought that was absolutely wonderful and because I felt like that is how my connection with the plant how that served me and I could go on quite a bit longer with that story but I think that's enough you know for for um mm -hmm. for you know discussing about how how you can continue to learn about a plant and from a plant. Yeah. And um, I went on to have really beautiful experiences with Arizona juniper. And to the point where, like, we were just out the other day and Max said, um, to we, we um, I have an apprentice right now, and and we were collecting some Arizona juniper, and Max said to her, "This is Claire's totem tree," <laughs> <laughs> and so it went from being um, um, the plant that I felt least connected to of all of the native plants that we've worked with to the one that I actually feel the most connected to now and the one that gives me the most strength and the one that I actually call on mm -hmm. when I feel the need for extra support and extra strength. Um, so and then I did, oh, uh, just a little bit more, I did actually start to learn more about its medicinal value as well. And it's incredible for relieving pain. And um, so I look at it as relieving all levels of pain, like physical, psychological, emotional, even spiritual. And um, also just in spending more time with this tree I realized how dramatically understudied the tree is and I have found specimens of this tree that are not unlike bristlecone pines where they're thousands of years old oh. they're, they're absolutely massive but maybe 95 percent of the tree um, appears to be dead yeah. once one tiny little puff of foliage that's still living and I just think you know I've kind of gone back and forth about how much attention should I draw to this it's mm. like you know I feel like it really is a valuable tree to know about and maybe it would actually achieve some kind of protected status and then then I also look at it and think oh my god you know it could all be like um 
you know, it could all be kind of corralled into a trail system too. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that at some point I will do more research and probably speak more about the tree, but um, yep. anyways, it's, it's a beautiful, I mean, thanks for sharing such a personal um, experience on so many levels about, especially your beloved dog. And I just want to touch on a few points because you shared so much. Um, I think that one important thing you brought up that I'm passionate about is that many people just smell an oil and say, I don't like that. I don't want to work with it. Mm-hmm. And you acknowledge you're like, oh, interesting, but you kind of stuck with it over time. And one thing I find it really hard to work with people in like general public workshops is people just do that. I don't like it. And they put it away. I'm often like, Uh give it a chance. This has messages for you. Mm -hmm. And you, you brought up, there is a specific message of grief about this plant and how it can help us. And uh, we humans have to often go beyond like liking and disliking a a scent Mm -hmm. and realizing this, these beings have these messages. And um, I wrote down here, give it a chance and then you expressed it takes time and it takes a hell of a lot of time for us to, to get these messages, right? Like you, mm-hmm. this journey that you described me, not just with um, that instance with the end of life with, with your dog, but it's, it's going on, right? You're still mm-hmm. learning. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I just think this is important to share with the community and have these conversations, like just taking one little class and reading a monograph, isn't going to, I'm going to swear, tell you shit about, <laughs> right. Like yeah. about a plant. We need to spend more time and be humble about it. Realizing like I'm raising my hand. I'm a student forever, you know, like. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, that all of us go through that because I know when I first started smelling essential oils that I had those same kinds of reactions that it would uh, it would just kind of hit me very quickly I like it I don't like it and and through working with them for longer periods of time then I actually spent more time even smelling it so instead of having just this immediate knee-jerk reaction after maybe a nanosecond whiff of something, (laughs) I go, okay, let's give this actually a couple breaths and fully inhale the aroma of the oil and do this several times slowly. I would find that um, my whole experience of the aroma changed. Like there were different levels of experiencing that aroma and I would feel it in different parts of not only my nose but my entire body yes and oftentimes um, I would feel an activation in a place in my body which is exactly what that medicine works on yes Um, so I think we all go through that and it's just um, a practice And it takes time and, um, and it may also be cultural as well, you know, whereas I think that um, maybe in a place like France or, um, you know, another place, India, for example, where there are these really, really old traditions of working with aromatic medicine that, um, 
people probably, you know, maybe just spend more time mm. smelling. It's like it's part of the cultural context. Yes, yes. Yeah. And working with plants on several levels, like I was speaking with someone about oud or agar wood Mm, uh and he was like, we make beads out of them for meditation. We make tea out of the wood and you can use that one piece of wood for several occurrences. And it's like, oh, that's important to know because some of us just think about it in terms of perfumery. Um, Yeah. So having a real multivalent, varied relationship with the botanicals is Mm -hmm. important. Yes, yeah. and I think we learn so much about the plants when we use them with mm-hmm. different approaches. Yes. Yeah, so different approaches like um, maybe I'm going to kick it off like by salves or smelling or, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you, like you were saying, using them herbally, yeah. using them um, as a perfume, distilling them, making incense, Mm. having all these multiple ways of interacting with the plant and having that affect your senses, all of your engaging more of your senses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, And um, I'm going to move on because this, um, you kind of mentioned because you mentioned other countries, I was like, oh, I want to highlight how you have traveled. Um, and you, you, I'm calling you a master distiller and you might disagree, but I am okay. No. So, <laughs> so um, I, you I'll, tra- I'll go for artisan distiller. Yes. Art- <laughs> these are my words. Okay. So, but um, you've traveled and it's on your website to Iceland, Jamaica and Haiti. And you do have some of the oils that you've distilled with people or for them. I'm not sure, but um what brought you, this is a broad question, but what brought you to international distilling and international consulting? I think, selfishly, I think that's so exciting. <laughs> it's been absolutely wonderful. And I have to say, um, I, I didn't pursue it. I think that maybe how it came about was um, initially being supported by others, so, for example, um, being invited by Kurt Schnabel and Monica Haas to speak at their international um, scientific aromatherapy conference. Mm. And, um, and I very much appreciated that invitation. And we met so many fantastic people. And, you know, that was, of course, an international event. And then... Um, a year later, I was sponsored to speak at Botanica. Uh-huh. And so it was um, um, Andrea Bouget mm-hmm. and, um, oh gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm not oh. remembering her name, but the wonderful woman, um, I'm rem- remembering her last name, who does, who, you know, puts on the whole Botanica event. Um, I should, I should know her name too. I know. I, I, Rhiannon. Oh my Ah. God. Yeah. That's embarrassing. Um, (laughs) So, you know, being, being supported by them, I think 
um, those were two definitely international stages. So I was very honored and grateful for being given those opportunities. And um, then, you know, the, the, I think also just having a website yeah. made all the difference in the world for us. Um, and then, so those other opportunities just came to me. Um, the first one was Iceland, and um, a woman contacted us. Her name is Rondis, and she works for the Icelandic Forest Service. Wow. And she, she wanted to learn essential oil distillation. And she contacted a couple people around the world, and I was the first person to email her back. And, um, and I just was super interested in who she was and what she was doing. And so, you know, we just struck up a nice conversation and then she wound up coming. She actually got a grant from the Icelandic government wow. to come and study with us for about a week and a half. And, wow. <laughs> and so we had a fantastic time. We really hit it off, did a lot of work together. And then she went back to Iceland and her nephew helped her build um, a, a, an essential oil distillation system. And, but she was having a little bit of trouble getting it set up. Mm -hmm. And so six months later, we flew to Iceland and we helped her set up what may be the first essential oil distillery in Iceland. Um, so at the cool. time, I know at the time we thought for sure it was. And then later on, I saw that there was another distiller on the other side of the island. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I'm not sure what their timing was. Um, but anyways, that was fantastic. And that was an opportunity that I never would have dreamed of, you know, when we started this work. Yeah. And it was actually eight years between when we started distilling and when we had a web when we started our website and wow yeah so it was just a lot of um experimenting repeating experiments distilling plants over and over and over again to understand you know what like we distill mm. something you know maybe six times in a year and we'd take really good notes mm. and we could start to see, okay, when is this yield high? And what were the weather conditions? What season? All these things. Um, so can so, I ask you with, because yeah. I wasn't going to ask you this initially, because I know everyone has a website and an origin story, but I want to ask you what, what made you decide to start this practice I'm going to say it was out of love and curiosity, but those are my words. And then you're saying that you did all this research until you waited, what did you say, five or eight years to eight make years, a website? Yeah. Eight, like that's a lot of time and investment. So like, I'm just feeling like you're doing this out of passion, curiosity, and love. Like you weren't ready to, to start just putting stuff on the market. Uh, no, no, I definitely wasn't ready um, because, I mean, I was ready to teach people how to distill mm. after you know after a couple of years um but i didn't have i needed more education 
about essential oils because people would continually ask me when they would smell these oils, how do I use them? What do they do? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really, I could answer those questions herbally, but I couldn't answer them with experience and knowledge about the essential oils. So um, I, I needed that time to experience the oils myself. I needed the time to learn about aromatherapy. And then I felt like I could start a website with being able to, to make at least some statements about mm -hmm. the oils and their uses and um, you know whether they were anti-inflammatory or whether they were digestives or um, you know, all kinds of things like that. So I just um, definitely the early years it was a hundred percent passion that was yeah. fueling it. You know it wasn't um, it was many years before I felt like we even had enough volume that I could consider opening up a website. I love, thanks um, you for sharing that because I think it's encouraging. Just like I'm going back to something I saw in social media a few years ago. I studied with Jim McDonald, the herbalist based in Michigan. And I remember him knocking about some thought comments being like, not everyone just becomes an herbalist and can support themselves full time. Not just anyone can become a distiller and, and just have a business, right? It's like mm -hmm. we often have to do multiple things or really bust, bust ass and study and devote lots of time mm -hmm. to, to these practices. So I really appreciate your sharing this because it's what, yeah. it's what I'm experiencing too. Like, I just want to share this when I'm, I'm updating material I used to write for the school and I found it very important for me to put my voice in that. So I write about my experiences when I'm inhaling the oil for multiple sessions and taking notes about where is it in the body, what's happening with the nervous. Like I like this has to be personal, mm -hmm. and I, I'm pretty passionate about that. So I just wanted to share that because um, I feel like I have an inclination of where you're coming from. Yeah, um, I was still painting and trying to make a living as a fine artist um, during those eight years. Mm. And um, I got to a point, though, where I was putting so much energy into distilling and the, the, my painting studio and distillation or, and distillery are one in the same, mm -hmm. uh, but the distillery started taking over more and more <laughs> of the painting space. And, um, but I did get to a point where I had to make a conscious decision of, of what do I want to do? Because both of them are very time consuming and yeah. um, both of them really deserve full attention if you're going to make something happen with it. And it was a very difficult decision for me because, you know, one, I had studied fine arts painting in college, and that sometimes makes you feel like you really should do something with it because, you know, all the time and money that's been invested in that. And, and I did for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, but I just found my passion being more and more drawn 
to working with the plants and I was having more um, kind of magical experiences with that. And, and I think the other thing that um, that kind of pulled me in the direction was that with, and this is in no way a commentary towards anyone else's painting process whatsoever. But in my painting process, it was a lot of time by myself in my studio, just me, myself, and I. Mm. And um, when I would have shows, you know, there was an opportunity to connect with a lot more people. And and in, there were, of course, connections with other artists in town. But um, working with the plants and with plant medicine, it wound up, for me, being something much bigger than myself. Mm. And, and that really... I, at the time I was making the decision, I maybe wasn't even fully conscious of that being a deciding factor, but it absolutely turned into that. And um, especially with the projects in Jamaica and Haiti. And um, right now I'm very much engaged in working with the Haitians and um, from afar, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I think that that ultimately, um, it it was it has been been much more fulfilling for me um, working with the plants because um, of what I've been able to share with people, and um, you know, it, it's an uplifting experience, as you know, just distilling is totally uplifting. And even, even when your distillation is a quote, failure, you mm -hmm. learn something every single time. Yes. And usually, usually you don't make that mistake again, because it's a bummer. And, <laughs> and you don't want to either waste your time or the plant material. Um, I'm just shaking. I have a, a few distillation experiences. I have a, my just private distillation and I remember my mistakes. Like, Oh yeah. Saying, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they make and, great stories. Oh, they do. Yeah. I, I had a woman call me once who I was somewhat mentoring in her distillation process. And she had, um, she had forgotten to open the, the valve on her separator and oh. she left the room for a few minutes came back as the last of her precious thyme oil was pouring out on the table and she called me absolutely hysterical and I felt so bad for her and you know I said I I have done the exact same thing I fully empathize with your feelings right now, but just, just think in a couple of months, the pain of this experience will be behind you and you will never, ever do that again. You will check it every single time. <laughs> that was your first and last of that mistake. Yeah. The you mistakes, know? the mistakes are invaluable, right? Like they suck, but yeah, yeah. definitely. Like, <laughs> um, let me see. I, 
Um, this is so cool. Like, I feel, I wish we could talk forever. Um, do, would you mind just highlighting, um, you mentioned the work in Haiti and you're still in touch, albeit remotely. Would you mind just sharing or um, anything? It's all special, but anything specific you'd like to share about the work and the botanicals and the people yes. you're working with? Yes. Um, so I went there in 2018 mm. and um, initially I I began consulting with them and uh, because um, it was actually a group called Prosperity Catalyst that contacted me because they, they support a network of about 1300 small farmers and beekeepers in mm. Haiti and they do all kinds of trainings in beekeeping and they focus on women in providing women with um, economic opportunity and with skills and um, so that they can sell their beeswax they can sell their honey wow. and then then um, there's a, a group in Port-au-Prince and the, their name is Fawn Limier, which means illuminated women. Mm. And um, they buy the beeswax and they make candles. And so they were looking to scent their candles with essential oils. Oh. And, and they were also hoping that, um, you know, that the farmers could plant herbs that the bees that would be food for the bees and then um then also they could be harvested and distilled nice so this was kind of the whole picture that we were looking at so i wound up um or uh, Prosperity Catalyst purchased a distillation system called the Explorer from um, Alchemia Solutions in Canada and um, from Benoit Roger. And um, he was absolutely fantastic to work with, totally supportive in the process. Mm. So he shipped it to me. He expressed shipped it to me and um I received that distillation three days before going to Haiti. So I had to familiarize myself and then pack the whole thing up and hand carry it there. Uh. And which was a, a definitely an adventure. Um, so when we got there, we got it all set up and we took it out into the countryside and we did workshops we did trainings yeah. in distilling and we talked a lot about the plants that they could plant and um and so i think we trained 130 people in in those trainings and, and one of the places that we went was the epicenter of the 2010 earthquake mm -hmm. and um but those 130 people that we trained were actually, most of them were representatives of other organizations, okay. other, other beekeeping and small farm organizations. So there were a lot of people listening mm. to this. And um, so it, things seemed kind of quiet for a while. Uh, there tend to be a fair amount of obstacles to starting processes like this in 
Haiti and often it's just it, it can be things like infrastructure mm-hmm. or uh, getting the right containers for your essential oils or your products and um so you know the front was very quiet for a while and I kind of thought oh well maybe it didn't really go anywhere but it turns out that it it really did and um so many people planted one of the plants that uh, people planted a lot of was lemongrass uh-huh. they call it citronelle they have very beautiful names for their plants um and um Citronelle or lemongrass is a plant that bees find very attractive. And so um, all these people planted it and there was such a huge call for distillation um, over the last year now that Uh they, that um, the Prosperity Catalyst office in Port-au-Prince, they had to just take the distiller out into the countryside, redo the trainings and just let the people go for it. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, this made me super happy that, that, you know, something was actually happening there. And um, so the, so Fon Lemier and Prosperity Catalyst now have um, close to a half a gallon of lemongrass oil. They have, they have, oil of a plant that they call Shadek, which is, we know that as pomelo, which is, um, oh. it looks like a gigantic green grapefruit, yes. grapefruit, and it's actually one of the three heirloom citrus plants that all other citrus are hybridized from. That's exciting. So Yeah, so there's a lot of that there. There's um, there's quite a bit of bitter orange, mm. which which is left over from some failed attempts of the French to start a neroli, um, like a neroli plantation process or plantations oh. there. Wow. So um, it's growing wild. Wow, in many places in the island now. So um, they've. They've distilled basil, which had kind of a low yield there. But anyways, you know, they've worked with quite a few different species and they have all this oil. And um, I was scheduled to go back in 2019, no, 2020. Yeah. And, and it was in January. I was going to go and we were going to do product making with all these oils. And then the pandemic, no, actually they started having a lot of civil unrest there. And so we decided, okay, let's meet in, in the Dominican Republic. We'll all just meet there and we'll do product making. And then a month later, the, um, the pandemic hit the fan. So we had to cancel that. Um, But in the meantime, um, Prosperity Catalyst has a client in the US that has a hotel, and they want to offer um, like a like a gift sample box of Mm. products made completely by the Haitians. And so um, it's been a bit of a process to like I've had to think of okay, well, what, 
what base materials do they have there that that could go into making products here yeah. here there's a ton of things you know when you get into clean beauty there's like millions of different options and and you know most of those options don't exist there but yeah. they have really wonderful coconut oil and they have um they have cacao there's mm -hmm. a, a small cacao industry there and there's a moringa industry so we've looked at making all these different products with just with the basics but yeah. with the highest quality basics like small super small batch coconut oil yeah and moringa is really really becoming super worldwide popular oh, absolutely so and what so, a neat yeah yeah and they've got they've got um nurseries for moringa sprouts and they're planting moringa trees all over the place so you know there's a lot of hope with mm -hmm. all of these different processes and um so we have about five or six products in the making right now and um, I did just do a series of videos for them oh, making great. A, a beeswax on florage. Ooh. And so it's, um, they will probably use beeswax and moringa oil because moringa oil doesn't have much scent. And um, being a tropical island, there are probably many different species that they could work with. I did one with desert verbena, which is... Um, they're tiny little flowers, so it was fairly labor intensive, but it was a good one to um, make the video of to kind of show, um, you know, where you run into difficulties and what things are easy. And um, are you talking specifically so, about making an enfleurage with the? Yes. Yes. OK. Yes. Just wanted like to the, clarify. Yep. Yep. laying the flowers yes. the fresh flowers yes. onto the medium yes every day or every two days yes um, yeah <laughs> it's so, labor intensive yeah yes yeah, so we've done that and we're going to make a body butter together mm -hmm. and um um like a, an aromatherapy spray with their hydrosols and a little bit of essential oil gorgeous um, we're doing a lip balm and, and a one of the goals also was to use as much of their beeswax as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, we're making a solid perfume ah. beeswax. And let's see what else. Um, I think there's one or two other products. They're kind of escaping me at the moment, but, um, but that, like, there's just that so has, much you're proving that you can work with, with essential oils for um, I'll call it health, well care. We'll call yes, it that. <laughs> well care. And, you know, it just kind of brings it back to the question of, of making the choice between like the painting and the aromatherapy. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, when I look at it now, I know 100% it was the right choice. Because the painting was a passion mm -hmm. and distilling for me and working with the plants is a passion. But when it comes to this other aspect of teaching and supporting people in, in just, I mean, these are quality of life things like besides business and besides making money. Yeah. 
these are things that improve your quality of life. And so, you know, to share something to improve people's quality of life just really makes me happy. And it that feels like a calling, absolutely. And and it's it's just much bigger than me doing my own thing. Yeah. And, um, I love that. I just wanted to share the, um, I wrote down that the, you had a total ripple effect. So like when you were saying you were there speaking, no one was asking questions, everyone's really quiet. And then you're like, Hmm. And now it's just like, like you're saying, like, it's a quality of life. You're just like that one little pebble in the pond is like, right. And now yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it was that big. I mean, I think it's still small ripples at this point. Yeah, but, uh, but you know but, what I'm it, saying? It's, yeah, it's, it's like 130. Did I write it down? Uh, people were there, but they were representing and can teach other people. And it's just uh, it's a reminder that the things we do that we think we're just not touching anyone how we are. Yes. I have one quick story that 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 just brought to mind, and it was when we did the distillation in Leogon, which was the um, the epicenter of the earthquake. Okay. We were set up in a churchyard, and um, the the lecture part of the process we did inside the church building um, but out in the churchyard it was just like the most crazy loud environment that you can imagine because there was construction going on across the street there was traffic on three sides wow and um and you know lots of horns honking and you know people yelling at each other there was a club that had super loud music blasting and we you know we were literally screaming wow at the top of our lungs to be heard i have a wonderful video of all of this but um there were you know we were just inside a chain link fence basically and there were two little boys from the neighborhood who came into the churchyard and they were so sweet and they were so completely absorbed in what they were doing. And I just saw them and their, um, their curiosity and their questions mm -hmm. and um, their willingness to like jump in and help. It just, it completely lit me up. And I was, I was just so happy to include them and you know that's one of those things where um you know it is like a ripple effect that you don't expect and you don't see and who knows you know they may never see a distillation system again in their lives for all i know but they were there and um they were fantastic youth yeah. and um it was really just brilliant to see them like jump right in and and get something from it. It was really nice. And for all you know, you planted the seed and there's like a potential farmer or distiller that, you know, one of them could become or not. Like, Somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And actually that that particular distillation was for a youth group. OK. In general. Wow. Um Wow, it's so so cool. I just like um 
I love the work you do. I know so many people respect so much that you, that Phoebe Aromatics does, but um, it's, thank you. you're just so, I think the word inspirational is overused. I wish I had a better word, but your oils are gorgeous. I have the Utah juniper that I just purchased from you here. I'm like, um, I'm going to spend more time smelling it. I still have the bottle of blue spruce, but oh, I just got like bubble gum. Um. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And, <laughs> and okay, concerning Utah juniper, um, when that is first distilled, it's one of the roughest aromatics that we work with. Like rough as an aromatically like. Rough? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. Um, it's one that, that is not like immediately approachable and um, within the industry um, it's thought that six to eight weeks is the maturation time for plants. And after having distilled so many different species of plants, I think I would revise that and, and, uh, you know, probably within the normal aromatherapy industry, like the, the plants that we're all used to, or that we're mostly used to working with, that probably is a very good rule of thumb. But I would also say that it, there is a much bigger time frame for maturation. For me, honestly, I think blue spruce is six months. Ah, see? And um, I mean, usually within six to eight weeks, I'll smell it and I'll go, okay, this is aromatically, it's come along far enough that um, I, I feel like I can sell this now. And, but at six months, it's, it's just 100% a step above where it was. With Utah Juniper, um, that's one that I would put into the year category, at I, least, because, because initially it, it has a high level of borneol mm. and a high level of um, terpenine for all, and it has quite a bit of camphor as well. So, you know, you put those three together and you're not going to have uh, an immediate perfume, um. <laughs> I love but, it. You, you can, I can smell that camphory, but I'm appreciate how you're sharing this, um, that I don't think many people realize that a, there is even a maturation process after the distillation. I don't, I think many people just think things go right to market. So I really appreciate mm -hmm. you're sharing this much beyond wisdom. Like it's like, yeah, to wait a year for an essential oil to mature. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now, you know, I'll, I'll open up an older bottle of Utah Juniper and then, yeah, you start getting those notes that you would never think would be there. Like you just got bubble gum. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, another one that I found um, when I was in Jamaica, we distilled vetiver. Uh, and and when that came out of the still, I was like, okay, how come this vetiver smells like peanut oil? Wow. <laughs> and I just thought, I thought, well, I don't, you know, maybe there, maybe we needed to age the roots more. Maybe I needed to dry them more. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that mm -hmm. I I highly honor vetiver distillers because it's a 
difficult plant to work with. And I think if you are a vetiver distiller, that's mostly what you do. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think you'd have that much time to do anything else. It's really such a, a high art, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, we spent like days and days processing this material mm -hmm. and then letting it dry. And we finally distilled it and it smelled like peanut oil. And I was completely bummed because I had, it was like one of my distillation fantasies was uh. to work with vetiver i mean it's such an amazing oil who wouldn't want to yes and so i was super happy to do it and then um so it was felt like a bit of a disappointment i opened it a year later and was like oh my god this is delicious oh. two years later it's fabulous so oh. you know I, um, I love it. Uh, yeah, I mean, and that that was my experience with vetiver. I'm sure that vetiver distillers, you know, they all have their magic that they mm -hmm. work with it. And so it's probably not as long of a maturation time. But to me, it just goes to show that we can't standardize nature. Yes. Just beautifully put I just this whole conversation and your insights are just so amazing and I just I I'm glad we can share this and I think we need to shout about it um all of us a little like loudly like the right off the shelf market consumption it's like it, there's more to it than that and there's so many people involved in the process right and like you're sharing your um experience in Haiti and it's like this is big this, this is big. And um, I'm going to say that like MLM stuff, I'm not hard on that, but it's like, okay, guys, let's just step back and realize how precious this stuff really is and how many mm -hmm. hands touch this and how much time is taken from the time the plant starts growing until harvest, until it's in the bottle ready to be smelled when someone can open it and say, oh my God, uh -huh. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's a, it's a message that I want to think more about too. So I won't, I'll be like, Claire, when's the next blue spruce coming? You know, like, I'm like, calm down, Amy. Well, calm down. well, Amy, we did just distill one small batch, yeah. um, two days ago because, um, one area of our, um, Coconino national forest permit is for upper the upper west fork of oak creek canyon which runs through sedona and um it's about maybe a 75 maybe a seven thousand foot elevation or so and usually you don't find blue spruce at that mm. elevation but there's a particular ravine mm. that that does have some trees and the trees have sort of an appalling amount of dead material on the bottom of them. Um, I mean, talk about a fire ladder. And so uh, we were just up there on Sunday and really cleaned up the bottoms of these trees. And then we're able to take enough plant material to do a small distillation that hopefully will hold us over until September or October for when we can go back up to the Kaibab where there are tons of trees and, um, yeah. lots and lots of plant material 
Uh, I so love anyways, it. six weeks from now, I'm going to call you up and say, Amy, it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll know I should maybe wait a few more weeks before I yes, go all exactly. crazy. Yep. <laughs> but I love it. Um, I think this brings us full circle to being like how we, in the beginning, we talked about how it's like the time arose and suddenly this blue spruce was kind of ready and you went and helped clean it up a bit. And we thought, you know, you thought mentioned again about the fire hazard and you're helping the trees when you're doing this responsibly. Um, and I'm just going to, I think this is kind of time to maybe wrap up a bit. And because okay. I wasn't looking at the time, I'm like, wow. Um, I think we covered all like the questions I had and I kind of knew we would without going like check, check, check. Mm-hmm. But um, before we just part ways and I profusely thank you, um, is there anything you want to share as parting words of even more wisdom for maybe anyone that's looking to be, we already talked, touched upon sustainable harvesting and looking at permits, but any words of wisdom for someone looking to become a distiller, even as a hobbyist and um, maybe do their own harvesting, any other parting thoughts on that or words to share? Um, I guess one thing I would say is take lots of notes, Mm. write down every detail you can possibly think of. And um, initially when we started, we would we would write as if we were writing in a journal. Well, we did. It, it, that is what we were doing. We had a journal, okay. and um, the first plant I believe that we distilled was Cleveland Sage, and we wrote three pages of, wow. detail, of details. And you know, some of it was probably not entirely necessary. But then it it got to the point where after working with several plants, we had all these pages of notes and, and then it became difficult to find what information you might need from it. And so we then made a distillation record page that would, um, that stated what plant we were working with, when we collected it, who collected it, what season, what was the temperature or the the environmental conditions, um, how, what was the color of the oil, how much oil was obtained, um, what the aroma was like, just all these things. And we kept doing those and then you could keep those pages together. You know, every time we did a Utah juniper or an Arizona juniper, and then you can start to see some patterns. And so you learn very quickly that way. You learn what are your optimum times to work with a plant, um, the optimum conditions, because sometimes the timing might be right, but then the condition is bad or vice versa. Um, So you want to try to dial in the best time to save yourself energy and to save plant material. Um, So, you know, that's one thing I would say, just do lots of experiments. Don't, don't worry so much in the beginning about um, making the sales and just spend the time enjoying So I think that, you know, for someone who maybe thinks this could be a living for them, you know, if if you get into it slowly with something else supporting you, 
that you can still have enough free time that you can work on all of this and develop it and then see you know where if your passion is continuing with it or not and to um i would say to give yourself the freedom to take time Mm. and um if that's possible in your life and um and always think about the longevity of the population of the plants that you're working with and so you have to think about how does this plant reproduce Mm -hmm. so what happens if i take all the flowers off of all these plants um does it if it reproduces by rhizomes you know then maybe you're safe in taking of you know more flowers i don't recommend ever taking all flowers of anything um because even if it even if it does spread by rhizomes you need something to be energizing those roots so if you take the whole plant off the roots are going to die so you know it, yeah. so just taking the time to learn about each plant that you're working with and those attention to details will ensure your care for the continuation of your population and the species so um you know and then it's like job security hopefully (laughs) (laughs) if the environment you know allows for this and we're Um, keeping those squirrels happy as they're nesting away in their home exactly right exactly yeah Yeah. there's so much more going on than initially meets the eye yeah it's just gosh i can't thank you enough um just thank you for sharing so many, so much of this valuable information. And I'm so excited to probably read more articles from you in the future. Uh, I have a feeling that's going to be happening. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully a book. Oh, some yes. point in the near future. I've been thinking about it a lot. And um And it feels like sort of like the wild crafting article was feeling important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, This book is feeling that same level of importance. So yeah, I hope, I hope that soon I'll be getting started on that. I just have to ask without maybe you giving your secrets away, will this be about native plants to the region and distillation and harvesting practices or is it um you know i initially i started to write a book about that and then um at a certain point i felt like i might almost be endangering Mm. just because it, it was kind of at a time where um things were really starting to explode with essential oils and so I just felt like "Ah, this this might not be the right thing to do actually what I would like to focus on more is a lot of the magical experiences that I've had with nature Mm. and this this all comes through experience with distilling and experience just in nature observing experience with using the plants herbally so 
So it's going to, you know, it would talk about all those things, but I think one thing that we're all really kind of craving is a deeper communication with nature. And so I feel like I've been blessed to have had some at least small amount of that. And, and I would like to communicate about distillation through that lens. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm like, I, I get that. Like, I totally get it. Maybe we can talk another time. Like I'm having my micro experiences when I'm harvesting for my Mm -hmm. own personal use. And it's mm-hmm. made me, it's made my relationships much deeper with the plants. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, wow. So we'll be excited to see your book in a few years. Oh, we'll give, hopefully. We'll give you a few yeah. years. Um, so Claire, I can't thank you enough um, for spending time with me and sharing your wisdom with um, the listeners of Essential Aromatica. So um I guess I'll bid you much thanks. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. And um, I've really enjoyed this. And I hope you'll come back to Sedona again. Oh, hands down. I'm going to be on the phone with Becky saying we need to visit you. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much. And um, thank you everyone for listening. And uh, I look forward to. More, more podcasts and more fun with more amazing guests such as Claire from Phoebe Aromatics. Thank you and goodbye, everyone. All right. Thank you. Bye.